everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cash, your weekly feel-good podcast, where this week we eat some chocolate, we talk about fitness, I know those are uh, kind of productive, but they don't have to be, we talk about the weather that hit Seattle this past weekend, WandaVision episode 5, and the art of telling a good story. That's right, this week I went out on a bit of a culinary expedition and tried ruby chocolate which is the first thing that we're going to talk about today. Then I went rock climbing and I talked a little bit about my fitness philosophy. It's not as big of a a soapbox as it sounds, I promise. Uh, And then it fucking snowed in Seattle and we talked about that. I'm still living through the impacts of that. Um, WandaVision episode, not episode five. It was um, episode six, I think. I think it was the sixth episode. Can't remember, but we talked about that. And then uh, at the very end of the podcast, I talk about character archetypes and story structure, uh, because that is a that is a bit of a passion of mine, especially nowadays. Uh, that's I think that's pretty much pretty much everything we do in this week's episode. But if you like this week's episode and all the episodes that came before it and the ones that will come after it, please feel free to go to patreon.com forward slash going up cast, where you can become a Patreon supporter and get access to the movie commentary tracks, the Pokemon Nuzlocke run, and support the podcast so I can continue to make this thing. And I very much appreciate it. I am fucking cold in my room right now. It's been an incredibly long fucking week. And at the time of recording this, my Monday has just ended. So, long way to go. But we have a fun podcast here to distract us for just a little while. Enjoy. I don't know. Fucking let's hear the next thing on the podcast. Ah, uh, nailed it. The one thing that a few people know about me uh, is that I am a big chocolate fan. If you've listened to this podcast before, you probably know that I'm a big chocolate fan, and I'm not a big candy person. Um, however, when I was looking at you know the, the the chocolate aisle every now and then, you just you just want a little something sweet. Don't you fucking judge me. Um, I saw something that I have had experience before. But it was in an environment in which I wasn't able to accurately identify the taste of it. So, I'm talking about ruby chocolate. And ruby chocolate is, to my knowledge, a fourth kind of chocolate. You've got dark, you got milk, you got white, and now you got ruby. And ruby chocolate, just like its name suggests, is in pink in color. And I have had, I had ruby chocolate like truffles with like a chamomile center. Um, and I wasn't sure if it was the, the filling that gave it the flavor or if it was the ruby chocolate itself that gave it its potent flavor. And so I wanted to buy just pure ruby chocolate just so I could try. And I broke off a little bit of this block and I ate it. And um, ruby chocolate is incredibly flavorful. It is probably the most flavorful form of chocolate there is. It does not particularly taste like chocolate. It tastes like berries. It has a very strong berry flavor. It's almost like if somebody mixed chocolate with like fucking um, like trick cereal or Fruit Loops. Like it's got a really strong natural berry flavor to it. And it's really good. Um, now that I know that this is what just the chocolate tastes like, there was absolutely like no chamomile flavor in that truffle. It was just pure ruby chocolate is what I was tasting. It's very potent and very strong and very different. Um, and so if you're a, a chocolate person 
and you want to try something different, or if you're a candy person and you're not big into chocolate, honest to God, it feels like a blend between chocolate and candy because it's got the texture and the smoothness of chocolate and it acts like chocolate. You can melt it and, you know, temper it and all that stuff. Um, but it's got this really nice fruity berry flavor to it. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just, it's very floral. It's very smooth. It's very tasty. Um, so I very much, I very much enjoyed that discovery. And the sky outside right now looks malevolent. This is, um, this bit is being recorded, uh, the day before Seattle's supposed to get seven inches of snow. So I'm very interested to see how that, how that shakes out. According to the internet, it's not supposed to start until tomorrow morning at 10. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how accurate that is because right now those, those are some black fucking clouds. Um, and I'm a little, I'm a little nervous. It's also only, well, it's 37 degrees outside. It's supposed to drop down to like 30 degrees tonight. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, eat Ruby chocolate. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Long, long ago when I was but a wee lad in what we like to call college, I, uh, I went to, I went to Western up in Bellingham, Washington. And uh, I fucking loved it. It was it was fantastic. In my what was it my junior year, um, I had a I had a a place to myself, and um, it, was, it was fabulous. And there was a rock climbing gym across town called Vital Climbing, and uh, and one of my I, I love rock climbing. I think it's just so much fun. Um, and one of my attempts to be a a healthy individual. Um, I was a member of that gym for, I think I did it like, I would do like a month on and a month off and I just kind of do it like that. Just kind of nilly willy. Uh, I think that's my recollection of it. Um, but what was great about that gym is that if you were a member, you had 24 seven access to the facilities, um, which was phenomenal. Basically what they would do is they would send you the code to the gym and I could show up after like one of my evening classes or back then what I would usually do is I would play video games and make YouTube videos to like fucking one to two to sometimes three in the morning if it was the weekend. Um, and I didn't have anything going on that weekend. I'd be like, fuck it. Let's just, let's just get some things done. And then by the end of that, I'd usually be pretty jazzed. So I would hop on my bike and I'd bike on over um, to the gym and I loved that gym. It was, it was massive. It had, uh, this great little Island in the middle that was only like maybe like 10 feet tall. And you climb that and walk across the top of it and climb back down on the other side. Um, it had this huge, like U shaped room and all these great, like there was like a little cave and stuff like that. It was, it's, it's still to this day, my all time favorite rock climbing gym, just the way it was structured and organized was was phenomenal i i very much enjoyed it and i think nowadays um or at least before covid uh you could get like a beer in that gym and just like it was just fucking a sweet place to hang and for a monthly membership i think it was like 50 bucks which i mean if you go there like all the time then it pays for itself um especially if that's just like a thing you do so i fucking loved that gym a lot of a lot of great people there it was awesome it's a chain of gyms i think but the one in Bellingham was my favorite. Um, and uh, recently, next to or pretty close to where I'm um, where I'm at, a new gym opened up called uh, Uplift Climbing. And I, I was so excited. I'm like, oh my God, this is like within walking distance. 
Um, I can go just work out. You know, maybe they'll do a 24-7 thing. All sorts of fun stuff. Um, and I know during, like, COVID time. So what basically they do is, like, on uh, online, it'll tell you how many climbers are actively there at the gym, like, on a live update. Um, and they cap out at 25. They'll have 25 people in the in the whole gym. Um, and you have to make a reservation online ahead of time. Um, in order to make sure that they are at uh, under, under capacity. Um, so I decided to get a day pass and I headed on over. Um, the gym itself is essentially uh, two walls of, of, of climbable stuff. Um, and the walls get progressively steeper. Uh, with greater inclines like the further back they go and that's kind of it it's definitely one of the smaller gyms i've been to um which means it only had like like maybe four routes that was within my like wheelhouse of doing stuff because while i do love rock climbing i have not gone rock climbing in many it's like seriously i haven't seriously rock climbed in a long time and when i did it in college I weighed about 160 pounds. I now weigh about 200. Um, and I have not done it for very long. And so what ended up happening was a tremendous, tremendous strain on uh, parts of my body that have not been the focal point of my fitness regime as of late. Um, and uh, here I am a week later. And my forearms are still, like, fucking feeling it. And it, it comes from hanging upside down by my fucking fingertips, weighing 40 pounds more than I did back in college, and not warming up properly, and not really thinking about that at all, um, when I very much should have been. And uh, my body has is, is still paying the price for my hubris. I'm like, I can rock climb, what's the big deal? Uh, nah, man. Um, I am in physically, well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you'd consider shape. My muscles are larger than they were in college. That doesn't mean squat diddly jack when it comes to rock climbing though. Um, my, I was, uh, I was, I was pretty, I was in okay shape in college. Not the best shape, let's be honest, but okay shape. Um, but I could, I could cling to a wall a lot easier in college than I can now. Um, I just had less mass back then. So it made it easier. Um, I still love it. And like, if I ever get the opportunity to do like a repelling rock climbing wall, most of these places are bouldering joints. Um, and if you don't know what that is to repel rock climb is when you've got the harness and you've got the rope and you got the, the fucking dude who helps you up the fucking, who like, you know, make sure that if you fall, he catches you. Um, and usually those walls, um, I believe exceed 30 feet. I want to say, if it's, if it's over 30 feet up, you need a rappel. Um, I'm pretty sure it's 30 feet. It might be 20 feet. It might be two stories. Um, I'm not 100% sure. But a bouldering gym uh, tends to be much more popular uh, when it comes to like a fitness thing. Because what a bouldering gym allows climbers to do is they, they have a certain height that they kind of cap out at. They don't get taller than a certain, a certain height, to my knowledge. Um, if they do, then on your own head, be it. Um, but you climb the wall, uh, without, uh, safety gear. Essentially you climb without a harness or a rope or somebody to catch you if you fall. And the floors of these establishments are incredibly well padded. Um, and learning how to drop 
is a very important part of uh, of bouldering. But it allows you to do way more routes um, pretty quickly because you can just kind of hop up and hop down off a route as you see fit um, without worrying about your your fucking uh, your fucking dude helping you out. Um, and so that tends to be the uh, the more uh, preferred version of rock climbing gyms when people open new ones. Uh, at least that's been my experience. And like I said, uh, my favorite bouldering gym is still Vital in Bellingham. Um, that one was phenomenal. And it's not that this one's bad. It's just I can't rock climb like that anymore. Um, it's it is it is beyond my now if I went there like a lot I probably could but then it gets to be uh, a little too expensive uh, for for me right now so I'm just gonna have to stay the course with the gym I have in my apartment complex which just got a bench press which I'm very excited about um, I need to pop back down there and use that a couple more times uh, but mostly I've just been doing free weights um, almost exclusively I'm not trying to get any bigger I'm just trying to get a bit more definition in what I have um, and I would say that's working out, um, but the, the problem is, is that along with definition comes size. Like, I don't want to get any bigger um, in terms of my physical uh, mass. Uh, and I haven't been gaining weight, but what's been happening is I'm burning fat uh, and gaining muscle. So my weight hasn't changed, but I'm down a pant size. Um, and I think there's a, a bit of that is the fact that I've lost a lot of mass in my ass. Um, so I need to start doing squats a bit more aggressively to try to fucking build up my butt again. Um, which I know is a weird thing, but it's like, I was proud of my butt. Now it's gone. Now it's just like fucking, it's not like flat, but I used to have a pretty nice ass and I don't know what happened to it and it's gone. So I need to fucking, I need to take some time and put some fucking mass on my butt. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a focal point for me. I definitely need to start cranking out them squats. Um... Yeah, that's a weird side tangent. People will be like, Are "You an ass person?" or what? You know what you're into. The thing about the ass is that you can like many parts of of the body when it comes to being attractive to whomever you want to be attractive to, um, are beyond the the person's ability to change. Like you can't really you know exercise and have your 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 Johnson get larger or whatever. You know what I mean? Um. Y'all can make your butt bigger with squats. Like, the butt is, like, like the only bit when it comes to any of that shit that you can improve. And it's done with squats. There's a couple of other things that you can do. Uh, but in terms of, like, easy to do shit at, the ho at home, like, without weights or anything, just cranking out some squats. Study the form. Make sure you don't fucking blow out your knees, right? And then just start squatting. Or if you don't want to squat, just fucking clench your ass in like for like really hard for like 10 to 20 second intervals and just, you know, release and then clench your ass and then release and then clench your ass and release. Just do that over and over again and that'll help too. So, yes, um, this was this was mostly a, a rock climbing story and then it became an ass story. And um, I don't regret it for an instant, to be perfectly honest with you. I think we all learned a little something today. So yes, there you go. Let's move on to the next thing of the podcast. Hello, it is the dawn of the snowy times. For me, at least. Um, right now, it at the time of recording this, it is Thursday night. 
Um, it has been gently flurrying for, gosh, I'd say for most of this afternoon. I think I, I drove home at like 2, and that's when the snow started, and it's been mostly going since then. Um, just kind of peering out my window. It's definitely sticking to some stuff, but not everything, which makes sense. The temperature is definitely cold enough for it to be sticking to everything. Uh, it is, according to my phone right now, 28 degrees outside. It looks like it's going to snow until midnight. Um, and then it looks like it's going to stop snowing. Really? According to my phone, it just stops. Um, which can't be accurate because they're predicting like four inches tomorrow. And apparently, according to my phone, it's not snowing at all tomorrow. Yeah, I don't know. It says uh, total snow accumulation of three to eight inches possible. So... I guess we'll find out. It says, yeah, from Friday afternoon through Sunday, Saturday afternoon. I'm like, motherfuckers, it's snowing right now. So the weather has no idea uh, what the fuck it, what is doing because I'm looking at my window right now and it's snowing. So, I don't know. Uh, fortunately, uh, he said mildly confidently, uh, it is not required for me to go into the office tomorrow. Which means I do not have to brave driving in the snow. I do have a Subaru. I have a Crosstrek. It's my fucking favorite car ever. Because it's the only car I've ever had. And I love it to pieces. Um, so if I, I would probably be fine. I also possess snow chains. So I would be super duper fine. Um, that being said. I'm, I just. Tell you what though. I, I, I would probably drive in the snow for funsies. Um, not for, for needsies. Like if I, if I had to go somewhere, then that'd be a bummer. But like, maybe like when work is done, I'll do like a quick little, little joyride thing. Maybe that's how you, that's how you crash your car. Uh, it looks like the snow is actually picking up in, in intensity. Um, I'm watching the, the snow kind of flurry past some of the, the lamps outside my window and it's, um, blustery would be a good way to describe it. Um, this is the first legitimate snowfall that I've gotten this season. I had a little bit of a dusting a couple of weeks ago, but it was gone like next day. And this is supposed to be at like some inches. So I'm, I'm very excited about it and seeing, um, seeing what happens with it. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. My feelings on snow are mixed to be perfectly honest with you. I love watching it fall. There is a gentle peace that comes with snowfall. That is simply fantastic. Um, and as amazing as some of my pictures have been going up into the mountains, I've yet to be in the mountains when it was actively snowing. Like I've wanted to this entire time. Um, it's always been like beautiful, clear skies and whatever. I'm like, fucking, I want it to be snowing up here. Except when I went to Rainier and then it was cloudy as hell, but it still didn't snow. Uh, which I, I was miffed about. Um, when it is before the holiday season, like December, November, that kind of stuff. If it snows leading up to the days of Christmas then I am all over that shit. Winter Wonderland, magical, let's do it. It's February. Uh, last time it seriously snowed, I think it was like fucking April or something like that. Um, I don't want snow after after the, the winter season. It's still magical, for sure, but the, the, the societal and cultural context of the beauty of snow is lessened after the holidays. It doesn't disappear. I still love winter. Um, and I love experiencing the fucking seasons, you know, like a lot of places, uh, especially near, um, like the equator or some tropical places, you don't really have seasons. You, it's always just hot. It's just summer. 
constantly. Or if you're in the Arctic Circle, it's always just cold and blustery and windy and snowy. So it's I love that sweet spot where the seasons mean something. It's cold and snowy in the winter and it's hot and bullshit in the summer. You know, I love that. I love the variety that it provides. Um, I, I, I do not believe I am one of those people that suffers from seasonal affect disorder. Um, but I always long for the opposite season. You know what I mean? Like that's that's kind of the beauty of it. Where like right now I'm like, ah, oh, it's pretty and it's winter. But in the back of my head, I'm like, my God, I can't wait for summer. Like shorts, like warm air. I can drive with the windows down. I remember all the good parts about it. And then summer's gonna roll around. And I'm gonna be sweating my fucking ass off because my apartment doesn't have air conditioning. I'm just be like, oh, this is the worst. I miss winter where I can snuggle up in sweaters with like a hot cup of tea and, you know, just be cozy. Um, even though right now I am, my feet are cold. Um, and my arms are crossed because it's cold in my, my apartment because I turned the heat off. Um, but I will preheat my bed before, um, I turn in from that. I've got one of those like heated mattress toppers fucking pays for itself the first night. Oh my God. And I like to preheat the bed. So basically what I do is I turn that shit on max. Um, and then I go to like, you know, take a shower and brush my teeth and stuff. And then I come back and I turn it off. And then I slide into my preheated bed. That way I'm not like wasting energy. Um, but my bed's all nice and toasty. This is cozy. Anyway. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's nice. It's pleasant. Um, of course, I'd, I'd stand on my balcony and watch the snowfall. But it is 28 degrees outside. And um, I'm good. I can see it just fine from here. So, just wanted to share my thoughts on winter. Yes, winter thoughts. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. WandaVision episode six. The the Halloween episode of uh, of the show. As you can tell, it's quite early in the morning. Um, this one is, to the best of my knowledge, modeled after 90s sitcoms. Um, it has a, it has a, like a fucking kind of like Malcolm in the Middle vibe going on. Oh, hold on. Uh, my computer's booting up and activating a million things at the same time. Um, so hopefully there won't be sound here. Okay, pause. Excellent. Um, uh, anyway, it had a Malcolm in the Middle vibe. As far as I can tell... I'm not too... The only 90s sitcom I was super familiar with was Friends. And... Huh, it didn't look like Friends to me, so... I'm leaning towards Malcolm in the Middle. Or, um... Or even her fucking sister's show. Mary, Kate, and Ashley Olsen, or whatever the fuck. Anyway. There was a Parent Trap reference in the episode. I thought that was good. On the marquee, it said The Incredibles and The Parent Trap. And I thought that was, that was pretty good. Um, although now that I'm saying that the parent trap was actually Lindsay Lohan and not, I mean, that version of the parent trap was Lindsay Lohan and not the Olsen twins. Um, I'm sure they did their own version of the parent trap. How could they not? They were twins. There must be a, there must be. Hold on. Let me Google that real quick. Is there a version of the parent trap with the Olsons? Uh, the parent trap Olsen twins. Um, there was a movie called It Takes Two. Uh, that had the Olsen, Olsen twins in it. Um, it's a similar storyline to The Parent Trap, but it's not exactly. So, so there you go. Anyway, um, this episode was fine. It wasn't as fucking revolutionary and mind-blowing as the one that came before it. And I suppose it couldn't be. 
because, um, you know, if every episode ended with like this amazing fucking like what, um, that would just be absurd. Um, but the the basic uh, events of this episode. So we got Pietro, right? Her brother is dicking around, being a being a, a goofy uncle. And, uh, like, the kids are talking to, like, the camera and stuff, as they did in 90s sitcoms, I'm pretty sure. Um, but Vision and Wanda are wearing costumes similar to what their characters look like in the goddamn comics. In, like, the golden age of comics, which I thought was pretty fun. Um, and Vision's like, I'm gonna go be part of the Neighborhood Watch. Wanda and Pietro and the kids go trick-or-treating hijinks ensue, blah, 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 basic sitcom crap. On the other side of the fence, uh, Monica, Wu, and Darcy have been kicked off of base for being logical human beings, that makes sense, and uh, they sneak back on to get some more intel, and um, they're tracking Vision on, um, on fucking Hayward's little satellite Magoo tracking the vibranium, right? And Vision's, and meanwhile, wandering around inside town on his own, and he's reaching, like, the outskirts of town where everybody is just kind of frozen in time. They're not moving and stuff like that. And my guess is because the focal point is on Wanda and what's around her, and when Wanda isn't around those people, they just cease to function. Similar to how, like, a video game will render what's in your immediate vicinity, and the rest of the game isn't really around or alive is the way I want to picture it. You know, like, all the only the only bits of the game that are ever really rendered... <sighs> oh, sorry. The only bits of the game that are ever really rendered are the bits the player can see in its immediate vicinity, and then the rest of the game doesn't really exist. Um, it's, it's just, it's, you know, it's like that. So all these NPCs are on pause until the main character gets around to them. And... Uh, there's this one bit of someone hanging like Halloween decorations and you see a tear roll down her cheek and because she's she, she knows that this is fucked and then vision runs into Agnes and um, Agnes was trying to drive out of town and vision like frees her mind and she recognizes him as vision um, and she's like you're dead and then just starts screaming the word dead and then she kind of goes into hysterical laughter and then um, vision turns her mind back off and she turns around and drives back into town. And then Vision starts walking across Ellis Avenue, which Wanda had told us about three minutes before never to cross. Uh, because at that point in time, it was the boundary of the, the town. And so Vision starts fighting his way through. <sighs> Sorry. He starts fighting his way through the, the, the I'm going to call it the digital boundary. Because it very much looks like somebody's fighting their way through a TV screen. Um, and Hayward and all his crew are on the other side, and Vision breaks through the barrier. He immediately starts to deteriorate upon breaking through the barrier. He he starts to crumble. Bits of him start flying backwards into the barrier, making it pretty clear that Vision's only alive because of what Wanda is doing, and he cannot exist in the real world beyond the barrier, which is incredibly sad. And we basically watched Vision crumble uh, and die a second time, which was great. I felt really bad about that. And Darcy's watching this, and he's screaming, like, help these people. Um, and they just stand there and watch, because what the fuck can they do? They don't even know what's happening. And 
Um, fucking the kids, right? The kids are weird because one of the kids develops super speed, which you could argue runs in the family because it's his uncle's ability. And then the other kid gains what appears to be Vision's omniscience um, and his powers, which is flabbergasting to me. So the, the kids now have superpowers, and one of the kids was able to figure out that Vision was in trouble, and he sees soldiers. And Wanda fucking pauses the town and expands the boundary, consuming quite a bit more. She, she absorbs the entire compound of sword, save for one car uh, that was um, uh, fucking Hayward. Uh, Wu and Rambo got out, but Darcy got sucked in by the Hex. And uh, unlike most of the people we saw transform, we don't know what happened to Darcy. She, she got absorbed and kind of vanished. Um, and so that will be interesting to see what the fuck my you know what my money is on she was in handcuffs when the when the fucking hex got her i bet she's in jail i bet she's a prisoner um like full out i think that's exactly what happened um and she turned wanted to turn all the sword people into a fucking circus everybody's like clowns and mimes and dumb shit like that which i'm sure is her being like yeah fuck you you idiots vision got pulled back in and was reassembled but he's still like on the ground so I'm not I'm not so sure what's gonna happen next. Um, I also don't know what Pietro's deal is because according to Wanda, I'm not I think Wanda I don't think Wanda can truly be trusted to be a, a, a narrator um, for us because I'm still convinced that she's behind everything and that she knows exactly what she's doing. But according to her, Pietro kind of just showed up and um, she she didn't do that and he says a lot of things like this is what you wanted right you wanted me to be like this um similar to what herb is like do you want me to change anything you know um it seems like they're both aware especially pietro because they talk about it later like pietro knows exactly what the fuck wanda's up to and is like flattering about it he's like this is radical um not those exact words, but he was definitely uh, supportive of Wanda's imprisonment of an entire town. Um, so he's aware of what the fuck's up, which either is A, he's on Wanda's side from somewhere else. B, he was created by Wanda, but like subconsciously, so she could have an ally in in like her, her mission here. She have somebody to turn to her that she trusts, her brother, and she and be like, "Yeah, this is good stuff you're doing here." Or C, Hayward figured out how to like fucking hijack Wanda's signal and sent in a, a bullshitter to bullshit Wanda to figure out exactly what she's doing to try and stop her. Um, I guess I guess we'll see. We've got three episodes left. That's the bit that I keep like bouncing back to and trying to wrap my head around. They have, at this point, two-thirds of the way through the show, no clue how to stop this. There, There is no clue whatsoever. Um, however, I think we got a hint um, about what is coming down the pipeline 
I think there is a, uh, a hint. And I think the hint is one of the kids' costumes. One of them is dressed up like Quicksilver, just like their uncle. The other one has a costume that isn't particularly reminiscent of anybody else in the family. However, I'll be damned if that costume didn't look like Doctor Strange. I'll be damned if his hair, if the cloak, was not reminiscent of Doctor Strange. And I think that's the show kind of trying to poke at us and be like, it's going to be strange to fix this. Who the fuck else could it be? Although, I, I did have this amazing conversation um, with Peter Maximoff, because that's what he was called in uh, X-Men, right? When, when they had their own version of Quicksilver. His name was Peter. How great would it be? There, I mean, I can think of a couple of people in the, in the grander Marvel Universe who could possibly fix this. Doctor Strange is the first and obvious idea. Vision on the inside is the second obvious idea. But if you're going to pull Peter Maximoff from the X-Men movies to play as Pietro... And you're going to open the door to X-Men, which a lot of people seemed to think that's what was going on. And I still very much doubt that. I, I do not think th this actor's presence in the show is the backdoor pilot to introducing X-Men into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That would be flabbergasting. However, if it is the backdoor pilot to introducing the X-Men into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then goddamn motherfucking Charles Xavier could probably fix this. And he, his ability to restore the sanities in the minds of all these people who have been fucked for weeks is essential. So, it's either going to be strange, or it's going to be Vision, or it's going to be Xavier. It's probably Vision. I'm going to go Vision, Strange, Xavier in terms of the likelihood of what's going to fix this. Uh, the fourth and most unlikely version of all is uh, that Wanda realizes that what she's doing is bad uh, and fixes it herself. Um, and I suppose she could also be convinced by like Wu and Rambo to stop, I guess. I don't know. I don't think I'd like that as much. Um, this is a super-powered problem and it requires super-powered solutions. Um, I, although, after, after all of my, my theories just then, I would be okay with any of those, to be perfectly honest with you. If it's done right, any of those could theoretically be the solution. Um, and that would be, that'd be A-okay in my book. Um, one thing I am concerned about is what Darcy said about Monica's cells having been rewritten um, because of her entry into the barrier and her exodus of the barrier. And a lot of those people have been in there. I mean, all of those people have been in there this entire time. So, one of my concerns is that the barrier drops and then these people all have like stage 4 cancer because of their proximity to this incredible amount of power for so long um, and then all go to hospital and die. That's, that's one of my concerns. Also, it, as of right now, it is difficult to envision huh, uh, of a, a future state where the, the hex drops and vision lives. I think in order for, for this town to be saved, we will have to witness the sacrifice and death of Vision for the third time. That's really what it seems like it's going to have to be. If he can't survive outside the border, when that border drops, so does Vision. And that's going to be really fucking sad. Especially because when Vision's on his A-game, he's one of the powerhouse members of the Avengers. Um, but he doesn't remember any of that. His, his memory starts in Westview, 
Um, so, yeah, it's fucking, it's fucking weird. I'll tell you what, though. I keep thinking back over previous episodes, and I have never needed a show to stick the fucking landing more than this one. Because I can think of a lot of problems in these previous episodes. Things that don't quite add up. Things that are not quite as consistent. Like, what the fuck happened to the beehive guy? The guy that crawled out of the sewer? He just fucking vanished. We never knew what happened to him. Right? We've seen everybody else come out of that fucking barrier except for that guy. Where did he go? So, this fucking show needs to stick the landing. It is imperative. This whole thing, this whole experience has been really solid. But it will only be as good as its fucking ending. And if the ending fucking sucks dick, then you've screwed the entire pooch. And that's just gonna be awful. So, yeah, it was, um, this was an okay episode. Episodes 4 and episodes 5 had amazing moments. And this one, I mean, there was a little bit of a stinger where she looks away and looks back at Pietro and he's riddled with bullet wounds and he's dead. And that would have been fun if you hadn't pulled the exact same trick with Vision in episode 4. It, it would have been fun if you, if or episode, I think it was episode 5. If you hadn't pulled, no. It was, it was episode 3, I think, actually. If you hadn't pulled that, no, it was episode 4. If you hadn't pulled that same trick before, it would have been, it would have been fun and it would have been spooky. Um, but you did, you did pull that trick before. Um, and then that just raises further questions because everybody's pretty goddamn convinced and rightfully so that Wanda is animating Vision's corpse, right? Because she, she stole his body and then used that to kind of, air quotes, bring him back. So there's that. But Pietro died in Sokovia and that was like fucking years ago. So if that is Pietro's reanimated body, he will either be like fucking in a very far off stage of decay where he would just basically be bones at this point. So, or just, just nothing there. You know what I mean? Like it's been, it's been a couple of years since Peter died. His body should be pretty far gone, if not gone. So this vision of him being bullet scarred and gray in the face doesn't quite add up. Sure, it's a haunting image, but it wouldn't be accurate to his state of decay. You know what I mean? He should be way more fucked up if that is his actual factual body being reanimated. Um, so I don't think that's the case. Which then begs the question, why did Wanda see that? If, if it was his... Like, fuck it. Is it her guilt? Manifesting in the vision? Is that is that what it is? It's probably that, to be perfectly honest. Um, because, like, nobody else reacted like he had been shot. He didn't react like he had been shot, so it's probably just a manifestation of her guilt, if I had to guess. Um, which is fine. She got some fucking Freudian ideals or whatever. So, yeah. Um, there you go. Um, I'm gonna real quick check something, because I did this after, um, after I recorded last week's bit, and, uh, Everybody just kind of had like their own ideals. Um, so I just want to check everybody's favorite source for for theories and all that jazz. 
Um, and I'm going to go straight to the Marvel subreddit. And we're going to look at the uh, discussion that people have had. Because I'm just going to look at the, the, like, the top comment. Because, you know, um, not a lot of comments right now. You know, it's very early in the morning. Let me, all right. Um, do, 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 do. Anyone else spot Pietro noticing the kids talking to the camera? Also, Wanda repeating the line, kick-ass, could be a nod to how both uh, Pietros were in kick-ass. Both Pietros were in kick-ass? Are you saying, like, the actors were in kick-ass? That'd be interesting. Um, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, Um, apparently this person is saying that, talking about how Monica's DNA has been altered, is setting her up to be a fucking character on her own named Photon. Fucking what? Who's Photon? Yes, I know what a Photon is. Tell me who Photon is. Oh, whatever. Um. Oh, interesting. So I guess based on that theory, everybody in the bubble with their stuff being rewritten could theoretically be mutants. They could be they could be mutants, and that could be a backdoor entrance for the X-Men. That'd be an interesting way to do it. Hmm. Hmm. That is a That is really interesting. Um Oh, I was right, it was Malcolm in the middle. That's a... That's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Do, 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 do. Yeah, I don't know. The idea of that being the entrance for the mutants. I mean, it's very possible. And that's very, that's very comic booky to kind of then sit there and be like, oh. But then we're, then that's like, okay, so the only mutants in existence are the ones that were in Westview at the time so does that mean like herb and um that guy with the mustache and uh that uh visions co-worker and agnes are um i'm gonna be mutants i guess we'll see i'm not too sure about that one i know everybody keeps thinking x-men because of what's his face like i would love it to be x-men i can't stop thinking that it is just a funny bit which i mean Marvel doesn't ever do that, really. But, you know, it could just be a funny a funny thing. It could just be like, hey, Disney has the rights to this X-Men franchise now because we bought Fox. Um, and so we cast the same person to come and play the same character. But, like, our version of it in, like, the funny sitcom way, you know, it's... I don't know. It's, it's, it's meta, I think. I think it's, I think it's meta. Because... The whole idea of introducing like the long lost brothers, like jumping the shark cannon for for sitcoms and all that shit, and having it be having them be recast and all that stuff, and still be like a memorable fi- like it's all it's all really basic sitcom and crap. Um, so I have no idea, and all we have right now are theories. I'm cool with any of these theories being true. To be perfectly honest with you, I think they're all pretty interesting. I just need the show to pick one, make it good. That's what I needed to do. And for now, let's move on to the next thing of the podcast.
And finally this week, I'm gonna go on a bit of a, bit of a, not a lecture, more of an impassioned speech with examples and, and research and opinions. So take that as what you will. But if this whole goddamn podcast isn't a platform for me to expound platitudes on random bullshit that nobody cares about, then I don't know what it's for. I want to talk about character archetypes and storytelling because I've spent many years of my life doing both of those things. And I think I've earned just a little bit of credibility when it comes to what makes a good story and what makes a bad story. Mostly from my experience of shredding through some of literary's most popular authors in terms of audiobooks and mostly from my experience crafting stories for role-playing games. And so we're going to start with a little bit about character archetypes because having structured archetypes for your characters is an incredible boon for beginning storytelling. And it is something that is incredibly pervasive for most of pop culture and has been for centuries. We're going to take a little bit of a journey back and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Commedia dell'arte, which was a form of performance, like theatrical performance, that was popularized, I believe, in the Renaissance period. And what was great about the Commedia dell'arte is that no matter what the story was, no matter what was being told, it could have been a brand new tale, the audience witnessing this story that they've never heard would understand what the characters were about because the whole point of the Commedia dell'arte was that there was a pool of I want to say I think it was like 14 to 16 different characters that could appear in any story um no matter what and that was the whole point. They would recycle costumes and these characters would have the exact same sorts of personalities and behaviors. And so the audience would immediately recognize that, oh, this is the Harlequin character. And that is where the Harlequin character comes from, is from the Commedia dell'arte. And they would recognize the character and they would immediately know what that character was all about. And having that be the introduction to the character into your story saves the audience time because they go, oh, got it. Funny person. Understood. And then it doesn't, you don't need to know anything else about the character because that's not the point of the story you're being told. The characters have pre-built archetypes that help drive the narrative and the narrative can change at any given time because you can rely on the audience's pre-existing knowledge of what the characters are all about. With me so far? Radical. Then that spiraled forward in time and there are still very structured archetypes when it comes to characters. I mean, you've got the classic archetypes. You got the hero, you got the villain, you got the mentor, you got the love interest, you've got the family member that dies, you've got the siblings, you've got the, the rival, you know, you've got all these classic character archetypes that exist all over the place. And it is, in, in my opinion, best culminated in that classic, you know, uh, hero with a thousand faces, hero's journey archetypal story structure. Not only does that utilize characters that are incredibly uh, archetypal. I, I'm saying archetypal a lot, but that's really the best term for it. They're very standardized. The story structure itself is also incredibly standardized because you've got the classic beats that hit on every one of those stories that follows the hero's journey. One of the most popular examples is Star Wars. You've got 
the character uh, who longs for something more. He gets the call to action. He rejects the call to action. His family dies. He meets the old mentor. The old mentor trains him. The old mentor dies. He faces great evil and defeats it. You know, hero's journey. It's like a 12-step cycle. You can read more about it if you want to. And it's really fascinating if you do. And all of this shit, archetypal characters, can be used to pretty good effect and to pretty bad effect. One of the uh, more common versions of a creator relying on their own archetypes and their own story structure um, that I've experienced recently uh, is Aaron Sorkin and The West Wing and The Newsroom. These two shows are so similar, not only in terms of the types of characters in the show, but in terms of the individual story beats within those characters. The character archetypes, regardless of which show you're watching, will interact with the exact same equivalent of that archetype across the board. If this character fills in like that kind of like, you know, um, second in command sort of thing that encourages people and so on and so forth, whatever, then the their equivalent character in the other show will fill the exact same role. It's basically the same basic cast told twice in two different settings. Which is a really good example of a modern-day Commedia dell'arte. See how it all fucking loops back together? It's the exact same character archetypes in a different setting telling a different story. But since you are familiar with these character archetypes, you are more engrossed with the story because you don't have to waste any time getting to know the characters because you already know these characters. You know what they're about because of the structure of it. You know, that's just like, that's, that's how it works. So in instances where you need to make like a pilot or something like that, you'll, you can witness this. You can watch this. You'll sit there and be like, oh, this character is filling in the kind of dickish asshole, um, comedy relief character, best friend role, you know, that sort of thing. If you've ever seen a sitcom or a rom-com and you're like, oh, this is that person. These are those character archetypes coming into play. Now, one thing as a story creator, you could... Jesus. Sorry, my phone's just vipping off at me. One thing you can do as a story creator is to take those character archetypes and turn them on their head. And that will allow it so when, say, you're making a D&D game, right? And you've got a character archetype and it's like a, a fucking mercenary who's only in it for the money, but they've got a heart of gold or something like that. That's a pretty standard character archetype. It's a pretty common NPC, and then you run with it. But then you could just twist that on their head and all of a sudden they're in it for the money, but then like the money's not good enough and they develop like some bloodlust or something like that. And then it evolves from there. And so you're taking somebody's pre-existing interpretation of what a character can be and then twisting it around on them and i i always love those twists my my whole DD philosophy when it comes to villains when it comes to puzzles when it comes to anything that i'm creating that i want to challenge my players with is this general idea that things are not always what they seem and i love doing that i had this whole arc about a a uh it was it's called a void dragon and it came from, like, the Tome of Beasts, which is a third-party D&D 5th edition monster manual. And my idea with the Void Dragon was uh, similar to, like, the ending of Dragonheart, where Draco goes up and he becomes the constellation, right? Um, I had this dragon imprisoned in the Celestial Heavens 
uh, where after a thousand years they broke free in order to uh, lay waste to the planet. Uh, and the reason they wanted to break free and lay waste to the planet was a thousand years ago they encountered a dwarf. And the dwarf, uh, whose name I can't remember, uh, found one of the eggs of the void dragon. And they had brutally murdered the, the, the child within the egg, taken its skull and spine, and fused it into a hammer. It became known as the Astral Hammer. And the dwarf used this hammer to banish the dragon to the celestial heavens, where a thousand years later it comes back seeking revenge for the death of its unborn child. Um, but then the heroes in my party found the hammer. And by briefly describing it in this kind of like bluish uh, stone that was almost like a mix of stone and metal, and that, that the hammer head uh, was designed to look like a dragon head where like the spine stuck out the back and its teeth were all fused together. Uh, in reality, it was just the, the skull and spine of the baby dragon. Um, and I loved that idea of of the, the whole story being like, that's the reason the void dragon is attacking because its kid was murdered. And then it's the ultimate punishment because the, the hammer is the only thing that could really bring the dragon down. So they basically had to defeat the dragon by beating it to death with its own child. Um, and then when I told them that, they were naturally disgusted about what horrible monsters they were. Um, but doing those sorts of things is is what I live for when it comes to uh, fucking D&D. Like, all those, like, mind control characters or swapping places or being in disguise and tricking the party. All that shit. I fucking love it. Can't get enough of it. Because then it's like the spring moment where you're just like, Baha! I gotcha. And then you lure them in with those pre-constructed character archetypes so then you can just fucking slam them with whatever. And then they're not expecting it. You know, flip it on their head. So... That's basically all I had to say about that. Um, this was basically kickstarted because I was rewatching the newsroom. And, I mean, even when they introduce new characters, they fill archetypes. They fill a purpose. There's a role there. And so I think if you're like a fledgling storyteller, thinking about the, the classic structures of character design and storytelling design, the hero with a thousand faces, the hero's journey, uh, the Commedia del Arte... Basically, any fucking story ever has some kind of structure around it. And you can find that structure repeated all over the fucking place. And using those as guidelines can really help you develop your own story and then start to insert your own personality over the top of it. While the structure of the characters and the story structure can remain fairly simplistic, the exact specifics like who the characters are what their family is like what their role is in terms of like the local economy those sorts of questions start to flesh it out and fill it in a bit more but the structures help provide you that basic platform to begin creating on your own where you don't have to reinvent the wheel the wheel has been designed it's it's pretty fucking solid and there are millions of wheels you know you don't have to stick to one you can choose from all over the place and you don't have to choose at all. You can make your own wheel if you wanted to. But there's a lot of fucking pre-built wheels out there. And they are probably worth taking a glance at for inspiration, if nothing else. And that's basically all I had to say about that. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of The Growing Upcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did making it. And I will see you all next week for another brand new episode. Have a good one, everyone.